0: Welcome to Dose of Depth podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Lukovich, and I invite you to explore what's beneath the surface of all sorts of things, including your own life. Through conversation, stories, and education, you'll see what you couldn't see before, find new meaning in old events, and even discover a new sense of purpose out there in the world. Let's get started. In this episode, I'm excited to bring back Vlado Schultz for the third time. He's a Jungian analyst and psychotherapist practicing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is my hometown. Vlado focuses on psycho-spiritual crisis, which you can think of as losing meaning or a sense of direction in life. He also focuses on mind-body connection, immigration and cultural issues, and women's empowerment. His treatment specialties include addiction individual and marital psychotherapy and youth populations. Lotto has authored many articles and he is the co-author of the book, Dark Religion, Fundamentalism from the Perspective of Jungian Psychology. I'm going to include links to the other chats we've had and a blog post I wrote about his book. I think you'll find him interesting. I'm excited and I'm also nervous because I'm shaking it up today. I'm throwing away my usual template where I thoughtfully provide context for the topic and for exploring it through a depth psychology lens. But instead, we're diving into the realm of the feminine, which requires a more meandering approach and embracing the mysterious unknown. This unknown, the unconscious, is where all the treasure is hiding until we shine a light on it. You've heard me say that the unconscious, your unconscious, the collective unconscious seeks to create, to expand consciousness. New creations don't come from the mind, although the mind, the masculine, partners with the feminine to bring form to what is seeking to be created. And the most powerful creations or new insights come from partnering with what feels like a mysterious force. It's that being in the zone or the groove with a task. Surrendering to something that's bigger than you, that flows through you to mix with your unique human experience, to create what only you and it, call it creative intelligence or God, can create. Whether you're seeking to create a whole new version of you or way of living, or you're paying attention to the chaos out in the world that is pressuring us to create new systems in which to live as humans, your route to those new ideas is your imagination. So today's episode is a spontaneous conversation with props and vulnerable sharings of drawings and poetry and experiences by Vlado and me of how active imagination has contributed to our unfolding and how that's related to what's going on out there in the world. Enjoy. Hey, Vlado, welcome back. What's going on in your life? Give us a little update since this is your third time back. Oh, hi
1: Deb. Well, I guess life is good. Um can't complain. We had a beautiful summer and this is my time of the year, the fall. It's uh it's when that's that's when I introvert and that's when I really experienced the the liveliness of the of the nature, so I really I like that time.
0: The topic is creativity and imagination and the unconscious and um and in the spirit of uh the realm of the feminine. There's no agenda for today. So we're just going to see where this goes. But I would love it if you would kind of introduce my viewers and listeners to this um, depth psychology way of looking at creativity and imagination. And I just want to show people uh, this is my first prop, the red book. And when I got it, I used to take it to the bars with me. And I'd open it up and everybody was like, what's that? I mean, it's just such an amazing book. So I hope you'll like bring that in as well, because some people might be familiar with Jungian psychology and Jungian ideas, but you know, this book didn't come out that long ago. So there's this whole like shadowy side, unknown part of Carl Jung's theories. So yeah, so just go wherever you want with that. Share whatever you want.
1: What Jungians are uh, about, and I mean, we are really about the image. And what is image? Image is something out there that exists within and outside of ourselves. But it also is something that it encompasses emotions and encompasses past, present and future. And that's why images, as as Jung contemplated them, are symbols. So we can find a lot of energy in a symbol. And when we connect with the symbol, we connect with something deeper. And we connect with something that has an, I suppose, answer about the meaning of life. And it has an answer about why we are here. And it has answers for all those cosmological and religious questions and i know it may seem a little <laughs> may seem a little uh, uh over the board but really images are part of reality and we are in the image and images within us and every time we are somehow relating to the to the image we're relating to reality and to meaning of life and that's why religions and religious ideas are passed on to the people through images, right? If it's uh, a myth, it's a fairy tale, or it's a it's a story. It's a, it's an image of Jesus suffering on the cross, or meditating Buddha. There is so much in it, and Jung talked about images as being inexhaustible. Well of of meaning and ideas and that's what we as Jungians believe and do in our analysis try to connect with the image hoping that we can uh, use its creative energy to heal us or to help us understand things better or to uh, bring about harmony
0: i love that uh and An example or a story came up right away for me because it was, I appreciated learning the difference between symbol and sign, right? I hadn't really thought about it before I started studying depth psychology, but a sign is something we know what its meaning is. So a stop sign is, we know that means to stop. And, but a symbol, we like can't wrap our arms around or our mind around what it's trying to communicate. So we have to sort of let the mind go, and that's where our inner world, our emotions, are connecting with it. But it's mysterious and it's powerful because we don't necessarily understand what it's trying to communicate. So the story, you know, the the moment where there was an opening for me it was very Hermes ish. There was a moment of opening, and it was like a I'm so exhausted in this moment. And it opened the door for me to connect with an actual image, which was the logo for Pacifica Graduate Institute, like sitting in the bathroom, I go right to the back of the magazine, for what reason, I never do that. And there's the logo. And I was like, what is that? What's depth psychology? And I just like, I knew that it was an answer to something. And I hadn't even known like what the question was yet but it was, and also a a synchronicity. So synchronicities are, you know, where that emotional part of it is. So, so awesome. So talk about, um, maybe we can talk about how, um, you know, that part of Jung's background that led to, you know, being able to articulate some of his theories. So maybe we can bring in, uh, the red book and i particularly appreciate the part of the story where and and then you can also bring in active imagination cuz that's what he's doing so you could explain what that active imagination is but i love the story when he's having an argument with his inner feminine about how he's not an artist like i, I love that whole part so so yeah so just again continue to just introduce people to the idea of image and then you know what is the role of what active imagination is a verb so it is it's an activity that we engage in so we've got this image thing and then you know how what is active imagination and then also just sort of bring in you know sort of more like where did this all come from
1: hmm. well i suppose a lot of your uh, viewers uh know about Um, Jung's process and Jung's what uh, many people refer to as a creative crisis and what was there for Jung was really experiencing a world and trying to make sense of it and he said something to the lines, I don't have the quote in front of me but he uh, he was going through creative crisis he had depression, he was actually thinking that he uh, was going insane. He had a very vivid, what we would uh, say, visions, and he would experience them viscerally and visually, and he had a lot of ideas and tried to make, this, uh, make the sense of the world. And he was practicing yoga, he was practicing meditation, something that maybe we would uh, call mindfulness. And he said it worked only to a certain extent. And then he said, he needed to figure out how to extract emotions that were hidden in the images. So he said that he needed to somehow experience and get in touch with those emotions because these were so strong and they were hidden inside the images that he had. And as he was doing that, he realized it was a healing process for him. It would help him to extend his consciousness, experience some kind of catharsis, but also understand himself and his own life.
0: So can I just, so can I just confirm, because my listeners and viewers don't know all this. And so I, what you're saying is that he went from sort of resisting the images and trying to get relief from them, maybe. So practicing meditation and mindfulness to sort of like hoping that being present they would pass through him or whatever so that didn't work so he had
1: yeah that is my understanding he said it only this yoga practices were good as long they were somehow able to contain the affect or maybe to redirect it or to control it in a in a a certain way but then he said like he figured out it was actually his kind of uh, the famous things he's describing in a in the memories, dreams and reflections that he was sitting by the table and I think it was a Kusnach and he decided to let go completely. And he had this experience that he's falling through the floor and he's going deeper, deeper, deeper and he lands at the the cave. And then later, um, he was describing this he was falling through the layers of collective unconscious and he landed sort of the primordial Place from which things started to happen. Um, so it was for him to surrendering the control, what you would say maybe to the feminine, surrendering the ego, that the ego had to die in order the self to be born. So he actually let go and he allowed himself to go through this process to 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 submit uh, to the power and with the trust with a certain peace. He said it's not gonna break him apart and it's not gonna destroy him. He said, actually, it was the opposite way. He said, if he was not able to abstract uh, the emotions from the images, he thought he would be broke by those emotions. He said, it would be torn apart by those anyhow. So what he is saying by allowing his ego consciousness to, to hold, and to withstand and to enter the emotions, the verbound images that actually open up the process of integration, and consequently transformation of the of his, per, of his personality. So that was the idea of the of the individuation that he really put into practice through this creative crisis that lasted, I don't know exactly, 1913, thirteenth, nineteen. Uh, Twenty-two, when he started to lecture again, and um, started to put started to write a, a books like the psychological types, and he was utilizing all the knowledge that he had in his theoretical papers. Um, so I think I, I kind of lost where we're going with this, but idea you you ask about active imagination. So the active imagination, there was this that was his idea. He came up with an idea. We can imagine things. We can go into the image. But in the same time, we actively participate. on. It. We are not only the passive um, sort of observers of it, but we can move within the image. We can go inside, let the unconscious to sort of aliven, and then we can navigate through it. We can do certain things once we are there. So we go to this state of um of maybe imaginative hypnosis. We can go there starting from meditation and go to the image, see what emerges, or we can already have an image, like a dream, for example, and we can enter that image or we can uh, do it through uh, focusing on, for example, the, the art. And we can enter it and we can let the unconscious speak and then we can have a dialogue with it and we can actually actively participate and change something if you don't mind i just mentioned you one um a dream uh, there was a recurring dream of one of um of my client who had a dream that uh, children actually were burning inside the bus and she couldn't help them and she was sort of helplessly watching this as a As a scene and it was a a very traumatizing nightmare. And she would be afraid and she had no idea what was happening and how would, like what to do with that. And after working with her maybe for about six months, I said, well, let's try active imagination. Let's see what what happens. And during that active imagination that actually gradually wasn't just one session, but she was able to go there open the door of the bus, the back door, and free the children who would be otherwise every night lying in their bus. And she was able to let those children out of the bus and save their lives. And actually then later being able to talk to those children and talk about the emotions that these children in their dream actually represented for her. So it opened up a lot of things. And there was from something very traumatic and imprisoning to something connecting and and, and productive, right? It was a constructive, it it opened a constructive dialogue and she was able to connect with um, some of the emotions and translate them to feelings and talk about them.
0: That is, oh, that's a beautiful example that actually gets to sort of the next part, which is how active imagination contributes toward healing. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that, you know, there were all sorts of things then in her life that began to be experienced and seen in a different way once she had that really empowering shift. And I was just thinking about there's this theme for me and my coaching clients the last couple of weeks where there's a lot of anxiety and we use um, active imagination to connect to the anxiety and where it's being felt in the body, and allow it to take a shape or a temperature or or a scene or a me- or a memory or whatever it is, and then to ask it to respect it and to ask it if it could sit over here a little bit, so mm-hmm. I could take so I could take a look at you.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I I never know like is that really going to work? It is amazing, and the interesting images that come up for people from like cartoon figures to like Groot from guardians of the galaxy movie to um to a brother or whatever it is and you know once they're able to sort of relate to it and see it and get some distance the anxiety is gone Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always just pleasantly surprised by how active imagination can be a quicker way to get relief, actually, because you're not just relying on your mind. It's like your whole, your whole body is involved in it. Yes.
1: Yes. I agree with you. I I mean, mindfulness, it became very popular in the United States. And I think it's just the first step to be able to see that something is happening, right? Like you are actually breathing. Okay, you can observe your, what else is happening? Oh, you have a tight chest and it's like, how does it feel? Oh my goodness, that is the heavy feeling, right? So suddenly you go from just being the experiencer to the observer of the experiencer. So you have the experience and you have the observing ego. So it's almost like you detach yourself, as you said, from your own self. And that is actually the consciousness uh, by definition you're not just experiencing but you're not observing and that observer of that is according to experience and uh, and the mystical teaching is really free from from the pain and suffering right it's like this objective self that is looking at something that is experiencing or is embodied and has a has emotions has pain memories, suffering, et cetera.
0: Yeah, like that reminds me of Eckhart Tolle and his Power of Now book and just this, you know, you are not your thoughts, you're not your emotions. You have thoughts, you have emotions. So, you know, can you see them over here so you can get a little relief and a little distance and then engage with them and even ask them questions about like, what are you trying to say to me? Instead of just trying to get, you know, the immediate relief, which, which it does both, you know, in that process, you actually do get relief from a really overbearing emotion. So I love it. So we brought up dreams, we brought up anxiety. um, And so what else do you want to, there's so many different ways that I want to touch on i but... just
1: wanted to say is so it, when you start about the symbol so it it goes the other way right like so what happens during the trauma which can be on real on a spectrum right it can be a sort of a mild trauma to like severe trauma that all those little experiences are being somehow controlled by the by the body and mind by the psyche in a way that Protects us from the suffering and trying to find the optimal adaptation in the world. So during the trauma, those things get split off and become sort of autonomous, and they go somewhere. They go to our body. They they uh, they, they either you know create a sort of a protective fantasy, or uh, or we develop somatic symptoms as migraines, headaches, or even you know uh, heart problems, etc. And during the the active imagination or during the the meditation, really, when we connect the images with the with the emotions, we are recollecting that was was broken up to the pieces. And that is a process and sometimes a very difficult process, and it's not so easy when somebody's suffering from, of course, from a severe trauma because it comes with the moral effort, as Jung would say, and it comes with the real struggle and dialogue. And is accepting the new part of the cell that can often be very dark, painful, scary, and numinous, right?
0: Right, and and accepting, yeah, and accepting the dark, you know, yeah, exactly. I that reminds me of a really powerful um, experience that one of my clients had, and she was had sexual trauma. And at the same time, she was going through an out, like an outpatient uh, trauma program. She was also seeing me every week to just help her. And so one of the things that she was really um, was a challenge for her was letting go of guilt that had to do with how she survived her sexual trauma. So apparently there's like four now. So there's four, like there's fight, flight, uh, fawning, and freeze. And she she felt terrible about herself because she was fawning, which means you're sort of, you know, playing nice with your attacker because you sense that's how you're gonna survive. So it was interesting because I said, well, let's just think about these automatic responses that are protective, that are part of evolution. They go way, way, way back, right? So I, I, so we imagined, and I'm like, how do you imagine, do you imagine getting back then, like surviving a bear attack required one kind of response, but uh, surviving an attack from a snake, maybe that one required like, you know, flight right. But a bear required fight or whatever it was. And I said, you know, your body had the intuition, the intuitive wisdom to choose the right one to fawn. Mm. Otherwise you might not have. And it completely just imagining that it wasn't exactly active imagination, but it was like, imagine that your body has this wisdom and it knew what to do. It's your mind that's shaming you about it, but you actually, that's why you survive. And it really did change her relationship with her own shame mm-hmm. around this, around this trauma. So I'm glad that, and the reason I brought that up was that you said, you know, once you understand your psychology, all oh, your behavior makes sense, right? So like when we, when we have a conversation with our emotions our, our shame or anxiety or whatever, the first thing I tell my clients is to be, is to be respectful. Of the anxiety because it's actually trying to protect you. It doesn't know that you're trying to expand, right? It just is like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And so we don't want to banish these parts of ourselves into the closet. We want to relate to them and have a relationship with them so that then they're like, oh, okay, you'll be okay. I'm going to let this other part of you now like play with you a little bit. And, and I'm not worried about you. I'll I'll let, you know, I'll let you go a little bit, cut that cord. So, so I'm glad that you brought that up because I think like, you know, people don't realize that their behaviors that are dysfunctional I have a light side to them they're not just dark
1: yes that's so true and it's uh, oftentimes it's uh, in psyche there are two two sides of it and one can be um very useful and one can be very damaging and what was true 40 years ago might not be true today so those sides could actually actually flip
0: Yeah. So So compassion, self-compassion is really, really important in this work, I think, because then the more that we accept our little things that are going on and we relate to them, that's actually what makes it possible to have compassion for other people who are dysfunctional.
1: That is very true. Vander Kog, he talks about compassion as being a very important element of overcoming trauma. Mm-hmm. especially having a compassion with yourself in that moment, because you are observing actually what is happening to you. And we tend to not extend our compassion to our, to our own being. We may try to have a compassion with the rest of the world, but oftentimes forget that we are actually the better of our own selves. And we should put that, um, I guess, mask, with oxygen floors on ourselves to survive and be uh and live well in the world
0: okay so all right we've been in the mind now so we're gonna dive into the feminine realm we're gonna meander we're gonna share we're gonna be vulnerable and for me uh i lived the first part of my life in a really masculine way being a woman coming of age in the eighties, you just had to. So very mind oriented, very intellectual. Also because of my parental complex is just like not able to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. to anybody. Not even really. I remember the first time I shared after I've been married for so long. And while I shared something, I was like, wow, I just noticed I'm never even vulnerable to my own yeah. husband. Like that's not a, that's not a good thing, but it wasn't until like everything fell apart, my business, my marriage, everything that I was sort of pushed to a breaking point where I had to let go because I couldn't fix it with my mind. And so for me, um, so
1: you're feminine. I- the, your feminine that you like true femininity came and broke the, what does that masculine aspect of you or, the uh- what do you call it
0: <laughs> Well, well, here's I mean here's how it happened. like okay, when did this happen? It was after I got divorced. so I got through that. I found some my mother wound and worked with that and kind of in an intellectual way. and then I was divorced and then I had been stirred by a man down at the beach. I think it was right after that. And he started, he triggered something in me. And so my first, I would say my first uh, time using active imagination was actually, for some reason, I felt like uh, drawing. And it was because I was studying depth psychology now. So I was learning about like, just draw. See, that's one way your unconscious mm. will speak to you if you're not worried about being an artist, right? But I was, the only thing I ever drew with my kids was flowers. That's the only thing I was comfortable drawing. So I'm sitting at a bar having a glass of wine and the owner of the bar was an artist. So he had paper Mm. and pencils. And so he's like, you want to draw? I'm like, yes, I want to draw. And I literally stare at the paper and I wanted to draw flowers. And I was like, nope, nope. That's a defense mechanism. Literally drawing flowers was a protective mechanism for me. And so I'm like, nope, nope. And all I started doing was from the center of the page to the outside. I just started drawing lines with uh, pastels. I think there were lines. And I got in a trance and I was like, Mm. I don't know what else to do except to draw these lines. And then I stood back and I looked and the space in the middle of where there weren't lines, because I just randomly just Mm. went to the center and drew lines out, was in the shape of a heart. Wow. And I was like, Come on! Are you kidding me? And I drew the heart, and then I just like colored it in so hard with pink. And my viewers, here is my first. Oh,
1: here it is. Yep, there it is. So, so it's a, it's a it's an example of something that really started to be alive, right? Like it.
0: I started crying.
1: Started to. Mm.
0: I cried, and the and Stephen says, "What did you draw?" And I was like so embarrassed. I'm like, "This is like I'm in kindergarten," and that was the point was like, I reconnected with this buried oh. inner child that hadn't really been allowed to express herself as a child. And after this, whoa, did I start unleashing? I started like doing cartwheels on the sidewalk and skipping and and playing beach volleyball. And I started like, and at the time, I don't think I had met Paul yet, but, or Philip, we'll call him Philip. Uh, I had met him yet, but I was like, oh, what's happened to me? And then that's that's when another voice came in That I called after I did some active imagination with a colleague, I was like, I, I know I'm a Gemini, so I'm a walking tennis match, but I don't understand this. I'm being tortured by this, like this, this presence, this voice. And as they uh, walked me through having a dialogue, like, what does it look like? Is it a man? Is it a woman? What does he look like? He took the form of a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a judging voice. So a lot of women especially think they have a critical voice. But they might not. that might not be the right thing. It might not be a judging voice, right? But we assume it is. And so I started referring to this presence as my inner lawyer. He wasn't judging me, but he was a little nervous about how my inner child might overcompensate. And so he wanted to make his case. And so I developed a relationship with this presence that when I felt it, I would literally sit down and have a conversation with like, okay, what are you afraid I'm going to do now? And he'd be like, here,
1: transcendent function for you. So he was mediating from one world to another. So in a way it was protected and it was a symbol that it was alive. Yes. And, And that's what, that's so beautiful. And you know, Jung said like the symbols can be alive and there is so much energy and they can help you grow or symbol can die and be dried out like a, like a river that dries out, there is nothing in them and they then become signs. science. But obviously your lawyer was uh, protecting you. It was a psychopompos in a way, helping yeah. you to transition to a new world. I mean, yeah, it's j- a question. is That's what it was.
0: Well, I just, yeah, I just was like, i I didn't, I misunderstood the presence. I had felt it as judgmental and it and it really wasn't. So if for me, if I don't know the right thing to do, it's really torture for me. Once I know the right thing to do, I can do anything. But when I'm like, I'm not sure what the right thing is to do. And if I do this, I'm going to hurt somebody like I can just be in that space of torture for a really long time. And so getting to know my inner lawyer probably changed that presence once I had a dialogue with him. And I wasn't like, oh my gosh, does that mean I shouldn't do that? That's not what he was saying. He was saying, here, let's just be thoughtful. Here's this, here's that. Now you make your own decision, man. I trust you. I'm out of here. And then if I would listen to him and have a dialogue, and sometimes my dialogue was just journaling. I'd say, hey, lawyer, what's up? And then I'd write what he would say to me in my imagination, Mm -hmm. right? And I'd have like a little script with him. And then he would go away for like six months at a time. And it wasn't until, so then- he, what he was doing was helping me, um, uh, come into closer, uh, relationship with my own self and trust it. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: so, and then I could expand some more and then he might show up again when I was feeling stressed out. So, so there, that's a great example of, you know, active imagination, which is kind of like my drawing. I was relating to what I was drawing and it really had a profound effect with me and then active imagination where I have this you know this presence in me that I'm dialoguing with and developing a relationship with and I come to respect him but also tell him when he can go on a coffee break when I don't mm-hmm. need him to protect me and that's what I'll say I'll say hey you can yeah, go on vacation no,
1: that is very beautiful that it yeah. actually it's a real life figure mm-hmm. that you can have a relationship with and it's part of you but in the same time, it's the part of the collective unconscious or is unconscious and who knows what that figure is, right? And is a right. wisdom and life. And it helps you to move forward and to overcome things in your life.
0: Yeah. And then I just got on a journey. So I wanted to, uh, th- this is where I would like to like take turns sharing a little bit. So that was the beginning of my journey with active imagination. And then really what came next was um i got swept up in my relationship with philip he's in my coming memoir and oh like what's going on here all i know is i'm feeling things that i never felt before and it ended up being a really ironic relationship that um in the end turned out really not to be about him but the relationship was this vessel for uh transformation and during that time is when then I really started uh, being open to s- symbols and images where before I, it took me a long time for my mind to kind of like, just let it happen, let it happen and not feel foolish about it. Cause that's one of my complexes. So when, um, when he, well, when he, it's all in the memoir. So when he went back to prison, I have that in my story. Um, I started having, I had this odd, sense of loyalty to him that now I understand wasn't really loyalty to him as a person, but it was a loyalty to uh, being in solitude and not being distracted by, let's say, another attraction. So for 22 months, I went inside. So my, my uh, you know, sort of coming into better relationship with my sexuality now morphed into a spiritual journey. And during meditation and this this, I don't know if I will call this. Well, there was an image during uh, prayer meditation of light coming in and going into my head. I didn't, couldn't tell whether it was coming in or going out. And with it, as I just let it happen, felt like this burden was lifted from me, the burden of figuring out my life. Like I wasn't alone anymore. And then I drew. So I started my image journal. So for two years, I couldn't write about it. I didn't know what to write. So I drew. And as I drew chalices and bowls and light emanating out of my head, I was like, it didn't matter that I didn't have words for it. There was like something, there was something happening. So I had this whole phase of engaging with images in this way where I would allow them And then, and then I would be rewarded with my surrendering with arousal with Mm -hmm. like spiritual orgasms. And I'm like, what's going on here? But that just told me like, there's more where that came from. Just Mm -hmm. keep allowing the images. And then I had a fantasy. So this is another thing, you know, that people might experience shame from fantasies, uh, especially sexual fantasies that aren't necessarily about literal sex. They're really about, you know, for me, it was a submission fantasy. And after I drew it, and that's in my, uh, that picture is in my uh, back of my soul book. After I drew it, I realized I was supposed to be surrendering to a part of me. That was uncertain. Do you have have an
1: image? Maybe you can show it. if you uh, since I do. I don't have the
0: I don't have the big one, but, oh, I forgot about my embodied dream. But so this is the image I had to Google. So I Googled, how do you draw a naked man with an erect penis? (laughs) How do you draw? So very vulnerable, right? How do you draw a naked woman kneeling? And that's what I did, but it was the act of drawing And I think people are kind of familiar with the idea of art therapy now, but they don't probably understand, like it's even more powerful than they think. And so what that did is that it allowed me to surrender more
1: Mm.
0: and because I had to trust that I was being pulled somewhere, not by designer choice. It wasn't a business plan. And that's how I used to run my life is kind of like a business plan. Right. So, so that's just another another way and then so and you let ex- you let
1: really the image to to work on you and you work with the image and i i think oh, it's still very common in the united states or, or in the western world that a psychotherapy is the thinking base right like it's really mm-hmm. the imagers are not so important because there's so many images out there in the world why would you you know pay attention to your own images or fantasies but really that's where the goal is as jung said that the images are Inside the emotions, and it goes actually the other way around too—that the emotions mm-hmm. are inside the images—and a lot of that is just growing when you start experiencing, and you just experience something on your on your own skin, so to speak. That it's and not I, just thought. Yeah, and
0: really I think why this those. is important. I think why this is important is that um when you can't think your way out of something anymore, you really have to give you really do have to surrender. And so I know for sure there are insights that I gained that I would never have gained in my therapy talking. I just wouldn't have. So, you know, being overcome with arousal, with light coming out of my head, like that impacted me and shifted me in a way that I, that wouldn't have happened through just talking about whatever it's an it was. Experience, I was right. And that's what, yes. uh, that's
1: what you said, that the experience is luminal. So it can be, it can be terrifying and it can be mm-hmm. really attractive and rewarding, but nevertheless, it is something that it has to be experienced in the body and in the mind.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it, requ- and it requires, and no, it requires like giving mm-hmm. into it. So, okay. So let's talk about you. Um, <laughs> And poetry, I actually just interviewed a poet. And I love poets, I don't even have to read their poetry, because I think whether they know it or not, they might sense that poetry doesn't come necessarily from them alone. That really good poetry effect, you know, really good poetry is like, it is the result of surrendering to something mysterious that's flowing through you. So it's mm-hmm. either creative intelligence or God or the quantum realm or whatever we want to call it. So it it's, it's like something bigger than you, but it's part of you. And so you have to sort of allow it to flow through you. And then there's your poetry and even the poet might not even understand the meaning of the the poem that they just wrote. So I love looking at poetry as this, um, you know, and, and it is also healing as well. So, so tell me about Your burgeoning relationship with poetry and what's going on there. And then we'll have you share a poem.
1: Okay. So I'm I would not call myself a poet. I mean, I I guess maybe I am in 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 a way that I like poetry and I like to write it, but I'm not a poem by, you know, like Jung said also, he was not an he was not a, a painter, he was not an artist, he was not a visual artist. That was it was his anima who spoke to him, but he really was devoted to. A research of psychology and so on. So I do not know about history of poetry. I don't, you can interview me on on a certain structure and um, phenomenology of different uh, different uh, works of different poets. I just like what I like, just like when I go to gallery, I don't know much about the history of art, but I can be touched and moved by, uh, by certain art. So poetry for me is just a way of Experiencing myself and my emotions. So I maybe if you ask me who am I writing it for, I write it for myself. I do it because it allows me to connect with something deeper. And my poetry is always about something that I cannot explain, of course. It's not trying to explain something. That's what I love about it. That I'm just watching myself to struggle with. Questions that I don't have the answer, but just verbalizing, there is a mystery, there is a universe that is infinite, and there is something we call love, or there is existence. I mean, that gives me shivers, and that gives me experience of something beautiful, bigger than me, and just playing with this, I feel like I'm participating in something bigger. So there is this mystic aspect of it. So sometimes I, I cry in my own poem, you know. Oh, and I, I love <laughs>
0: it. Oh my gosh.
1: And I feel like, wow. And I'm like, I'm not crying like this is so beautiful. I was like, wow, it helped me. It allowed me to experience something. Yes. And I may be surprised where did it come from? And I don't want to think about it, the poetry too much because, you know, when you start thinking about it, you sort of take away, you, you like, you cover it, like, right? Like you, you,
0: well then it's just a stop you, you sign.
1: Died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you put too much brain into it and then you take away the, the the mystery and the beauty of there it. is something about the poetry there if something rhymes, it's like this um you know, like the the alchemist said the simulus similar currenter cure similar by similar. So I think when something rhymes, it evokes something, it's almost like memory. You remember something as if it was your life, as if you lived there, as if you connected, as if it was familiar to you, and yet you know in the same time that you weren't, right? And then maybe that's in a rhyme. And it's both true that you do remember it and then you don't. That is that kind of connection between the individual life of your own finite life versus the infinite eternal life of it mm. of, of being I that's really know.
0: beautiful thank, thank you I, that oh my gosh that's beautiful in fact and i'm going to share one of my tankas that it's exactly what you just said that that's exactly like a kind of remembering mm. a, re- a reuniting a re- circling back a coming home yeah so, that's how it
1: feels for me yeah there yeah. is some, you suddenly feel like wow that's what it is what is it i don't know but it feels so familiar right and it feels beautiful and that i think in that beauty it's it's always in the beauty right like when we are moved and when, when we have this catharsis there is no words needed it's just it it's just experience you walk away from the movie and you're changed and you don't know why but it works and that's the beauty of the mystery
0: yeah so what are you going to read for us
1: Maybe I can read, and uh, people who read it, they they say, oh, I know what is it about. And I said, really? You have to tell me, (laughs) because I'm not really sure. De profundis. Once she calls, you have to let go. There's no resisting that you must know. When she pulls you down and injects with the poisonous dose, when she scratches your veins, with her pointy claws. You have no chance to win this match. Just open your heart and surrender her touch. Though she's not up to kill, she just wants you to feel, to hear, to smell, to undertake her voice in her darkest quake. You must hold it. Despite her screaming, you must listen and not fall down, look for love, look for meaning. She needs your eyes, she needs your palm to keep her calm. If you fight her, you had already lost. If you ignore her, she'll turn into your nightmare's ghost. Just ask her why and what she wants and make her a companion. Don't fear her darkness, loudly moans, make your calm wisdom to be your stallion. You quickly find she has the power only when you buy her game. She needs you as much as you need her to stop the pain, to break the scam. Just kiss her lips or touch her hair. By closeness, you create the distance. By distance, you become free. By the freedom, you break the resistance. By this, you are now the one that you meant to be.
0: Oh my gosh, that's amazing.
1: <laughs> Thank okay, you.
0: so for me, oh my gosh, you're talking about my relationship with my unconscious. I mean, that's what it feels like.
1: <laughs> Some people um, can see their partners their mothers in it themselves mm. or some people can see uh, anxiety or depression or even psychotic oh sort of disorder I mean it could be anything and I don't want to put any more rational kind of finger on it because I think the beauty of poetry is to think to, to keep things open and not connect the loose ends I think it's a uh, it's the beauty.
0: And that's that's why poetry should be shared. Hmm. Because you never know like one what, what little piece of it is like exactly what that other person needed to connect with to energize something.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean that's so I love it. again when we talk about the difference between sign and symbol, right? The symbol opens something that we learn about something that we didn't know was already there rather than pretending we know what it is and then close it
0: you know i've i i said this in my last interview with a poet and or i didn't i don't think it was part of the interview but when i wrote about it is that you know for those people who are like i don't get poetry i don't understand poetry and they're so like it's such a resistance to poetry and i and I have wondered, because I have somebody in mind that I know very well, uh, I wonder if there's like the resistance is to being pulled into their own unconscious, like, mm-hmm. like there's a fear. So if the mind can't understand it, like, then I don't, I can't go there. Like, if I don't know what it is, I can't. Yeah, so
1: that's very, very possible. It can be very, uh, very painful to experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So my relationship with poetry is I've never written anything like you just wrote and I, because I have a fear, my complex is around fear of appearing foolish and perfectionist and not knowing and all of that. So I wrote, so in my swept up relationship, when, uh, my lover went back to prison. I didn't even know he had ever been to prison, right? And then I felt this like really strange sense of loyalty. And and um, I don't think my, it was my, well, let me think about it. My first poem I wrote was, oh, probably right before. We were writing letters. And so um, he, he was very, he, this person, Philip, really was uh, embodied the feminine. Is very meandering, very loving, very affectionate, very childlike. And of course I was like this hyper-masculine oriented person. And so even like that was part of this draw and he wrote poems. Like he showed me s- silly stories he wrote in eighth grade. And I was like, wow, you wrote this? So he challenged me in a letter to write a poem. So I started with a haiku form, which I think most people are familiar with. It's like, how many lines is a haiku? F- five, five lines, whatever. And then um, that was too constraining for me, and so I really settled into loving tanka, which is um, which is a little bit more lines and syllables, but it's not too open ended. So like your what you just wrote, that would scare the crap out of me to actually experience that. <laughs> so maybe maybe one day I'll have to try that. So my first poem is about uh, an earwig. So I was sitting on the patio, and I was like. And then it showed up in my dream. So then I thought, well, what's an earwig? And I Googled like, what what is the spiritual meaning of earwig? And it was and it was really interesting what they described about the earwig totem. Um, and so this is the first time. To- no, is this a haiku? Okay, so this is a haiku. The first poem I wrote is earwigs are ugly. They are also survivors. A kind of beauty. So it really was like, I was going through what you could say was a really ugly, right? An ugly time. And um, so the earwig. And then about a year, I think this is around a year after I had met my man, I wrote um, these two, because I think I was trying to understand like, what does this relationship mean? Like, why am I like committed to this? guy that i only dated for eight months and i'm and i'm about to go visit him in prison right and and which was oh my gosh which was just really an uh, overwhelming experience so these are my other kind my other uh poems a day at the beach swept up by aphrodite souls remembering so it was like that feeling of remembering And we had met at the beach and this was like a year later and so much had happened. And then this other, this one was really about him. Uh, Meandering soul, searching, seeking, connecting a returning home. So I don't know why. Right. But this is what he meant, you know, for, for me was this, this, we were this vessel, this relate was this vessel of,
1: and I bet it 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 moved you. And I can when I when I hear it, I close my eyes and I feel, I feel something from what you experienced. I don't know what you felt, but of course I'm projecting my own things on it. But if there is already an image, there is the beach, there is an Aphrodite, you go in there, and they don't have to be connected rationally, or in any way, to move us, right? And this is so beautiful about poetry that you go and you sing into something that perhaps is a state of the kind of undifferentiated ego that is swimming and looking for the meaning. And all those meanings, all the living, the lives are actually connecting all those images back to the meaning that is final, that we can say, oh, now I'm ready to go back (laughs) and dismantle all that meaning that I have collected as when I lived here.
0: Yeah, and like you said, like, I didn't really even know The meaning of what I wrote. It just was there. It was just what I felt. And only now do I understand, right? That that whole purpose of that whole crazy experience was to remember something about me. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, he was, you know, sort of used as this, you know, way in this. And of course, you know, there was him you know what was going to happen was he going to be transformed by the relationship mm, not so much but that doesn't matter like the point was you know me so um well,
1: him or whoever you meet in your life right like he's the holder of something that you have within you and he helps you to bring it up to your own consciousness
0: yes so um then just qu- kind of going forward then after prison is over i'm like well come live with me right? Like, that seems like the right thing to do. Um, And it really wasn't. But I didn't know that I just kept and I had to have so much courage to withstand like the embarrassment of my own situation. And so this drawing, I woke up one day, I was having menopausal hot flashes. And I was having dreams of just I was having dreams of penises, phallic symbols, and they, A series of them. And you could see the progression of what was happening in my relationship to my own inner phallic symbol, which in the end wasn't even connected to a man. It was just, it was me. It was on me. I had my own. And so I woke up one day and things were climaxing with this relationship. And I woke up one day and I had to draw this. So for my listeners, it's my womb on fire. So it's a womb, it's got fire and there's a, there's a, a phallic symbol. And I wrote all these words and it was womb and phallus and and fire volcano and mad woman, crazy creative and take in the phallus. And I was like, oh my.
1: That's what that sort of Kundalini energy, oh, right? Yeah. The, the-
0: and so you know what happened? Yeah. I was like, this isn't gonna work, dude, you're out of here. It was so clear that it was done. And then I also wrote my first workshop that came out of like my research and I, and for Alverno and it was about uh, the patriarchal wounds that both men and women carry. And so it was about reconciling that. And then eventually that led to me shedding more uh, attachment to convention. That was very uncomfortable. And then that's what allowed me to like leave my hometown and go down to Jacksonville beach and then withstand more anxiety about what the heck I was going to do with my life. So yeah, that was, A a big pivot point for me. And so drawing and dreams um, can be really powerful. And another really uh, pivotal um, active imagination experience was I had an embodied dream. And this was in the beginning of my relationship with that man. And it was sort of prophetic in that it was, I didn't know at the time, but the dream of being in a campsite bathroom stall in the dark because we were going to go hiking at a, camp, a state park the next day and not being able to see my way out. And I had to feel my way out. Of course, I didn't know this when I first journaled about it. I'm mm. like, what is this? And then eventually it's like, oh, I had to feel my way out. And then I tumbled down backwards down a hill in the dark.
1: It's so beautiful how, how dreams can really... Tell you what you need to know the best possible way. And you can't really think about, right? Like it has to be the way that appeals to you. And it's just like, oh, you have to feel your way out, right? Oh, and now how do you implement that in your own life?
0: Right. So all I knew that morning was I woke up and tumbling backwards down the hall was or down the hill was it, I felt safer than I ever felt in my life for some odd reason. And I was, I could feel like the leaves falling and there was this breeze and I'd tumble and then I'd stop and I'd tumble and, and I woke up and an embodied dream is like, I felt it when I woke up and I didn't know the meaning, but I knew it was powerful. So I drew it. And so when I drew it, I added, this is the act of imagination part. I added the hands at the bottom. Mm. Because the sense was the sense that I would be okay. Now, I didn't know what I was going to be okay. But for me, I think dreams are kind of forward looking. And it was later on that I was like, whoa, that dream was, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. So your mind can say, I can do this. But that's not the same as like you feeling like I can do this. And so I didn't need to know what that meant something happened in my body that then allowed me. It
1: was in a sort of an organic level. Yes. Yeah, it was intelligence of being rather than intelligence of mind. Because if
0: I hadn't had that dream and that active imagination experience, I might not have been able to withstand the irony of that relationship. I would have been like, nope, I'm out of here. This doesn't make any sense. But instead, like, I just felt this calling that I had to go through whatever this was, so... So that's my relationship with uh, active imagination.
1: Yeah, well, I think what you really just by showing uh, to your listeners uh, the images and and speaking about it, you are the living example of how <laughs> how active imagination is like how work with symbols, uh, how real it is, and how important that is, and how it can really move. Uh, move the psyche. How right. can really help. And there was healing. Healing
0: was like the first part, but then it was like unleashing, right? So then it was like becoming more of my potential. So you've touched on healing. And I think like a good way to like, end our conversation would be about like, you could touch on why this is so powerful, you know, even why we're being called why it's so important right now to imagine, right, instead of like this, it's like this climaxing of the mind right now. Right. And, and we have to like, like let the volcano explode and let something new come out of the collective unconscious. So, you know, so for my clients, I tell them that, yeah, you're doing your own thing, your own journey, but you don't realize like you actually, by showing up in the world are contributing to the collective unconscious. So like, what are your thoughts about you know the role of imagination and the role of active imagination and the connection between you know the personal and and the collective.
1: As I stated in the beginning, if I understand your question, so it's really to connect with ourselves, therefore with humanity, and therefore with reality, right? Like I mean, humans have for millennia they were following and relating and connecting with. Their own mythology, for example, or with their images, with you know the the shamanism itself was the way of connecting the tribe and the individual with the tribe and connecting with the greater meaning and the universe, right? And I think the sort of our way of spiritual awakening, which I think that's how I understand the process of of, of being or process of life, that is it's a sort of a, a should be a gradual process of awakening or individuation is really getting back to where we come from and connecting with our deep, deepest roots. So if we forget that, and when we cut off the unconscious, then we become rootless machines, and there will be no difference between a human and a robot who has no um, heart or who has no the best interest of the planet and humanity at at uh, at his heart so recollecting and reconnecting with our roots it's a it's a process of religion or spirituality if you will but it's also the process of preserving what we have and being able to continue that and take it to to the next unforeseen levels of so feeling and being alive and I believe just from that experience and being alive being able to, have a relationship to ourselves, to the images that come from our unconscious, everything comes out of it, right? Like, I mean it's a mystery what happens. And just that process is beautiful. And that's what I believe in, right? Like the psychotherapy or the Jungian analysis are helping us to connect with that. And then as we connect, we become more alive and we make better choices in our lives. We are in, we are hypnotized into certain um, beliefs and we are indoctrinated and we are traumatized, and then hopefully our lives are tending towards awakening and, and individuating and becoming more alive.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, Do we miss anything? Anything <laughs> yeah, else you want to share? We missed everything
1: else we didn't talk about, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. There was a great uh, talk with you there.
0: Okay. So uh, I hope you enjoyed my chat, my spontaneous conversation full of active imagination and vulnerable sharings with Vlado. And it inspires you to um, try it out. See what happens. Don't worry about being an artist. Just see what happens. If I can do it, you can do it. Okay, till next time. I'm your host, Deborah Lukovic, and you are listening to Dose of Depth, podcast. To get updates on new episodes, my writing and how I teach my clients to get to know that deeper part of themselves, go to DeborahLukovich.com. Oh, and if you're not ready for a coach, learn what my clients know in my book, Your Soul is Talking. Are you listening? Five Steps to Uncovering Your Hidden Purpose. You can check it out on my website or get it on Amazon.